Good morning. For those of you that haven't gotten to meet us yet, um, we've been coming fairly consistently since April or May, except for vacations. And um, this is my family, Mariah, Kiana, and Liam. And But I'm familiar with hope that goes back even farther because you all don't realize it, but I've been stalking you this last year. Um, Kathy and I have known each other for a while, and um, I know a lot of the ministers in the UU, And but as far as coming to Hope, I'd only been here for a service maybe two or three times in the last 10 years, and it was always just in and out, And uh, but this last year, I was coming up here several times a week during some weeks, um, and so I used the back of your cabin. So just so you know, be in the clear. Um, I wasn't trespassing. I had permission and uh, used it as a place of refuge, and um, which this hill and this congregation is a refuge. And for those that may be new, this hill right here in the middle of, of urban Tulsa is very much a refuge. And not just for us, but for the animals that are around us, and the trees, and what a beautiful place this is. So I appreciate being able to come. And when Kathy invited me to speak, she said, you need to talk about something Cherokee. <laughs> so, okay. So, sorry if you were expecting, like, long braids and a feather sticking up. Um, but those of you from Oklahoma probably know Cherokees, Creeks, Choctaws, we're a mixed bunch. And we started mixing a long time ago. And so, um, and we still have ceremonial grounds going and that sort of thing. So, but, and before I start my sermon, I would like to just take a moment to acknowledge and bring ourselves centered. Um, I know at least on my heart, I, I, I am always really in tune with what's going on around the world, whether it's in Timbuktu or Charlotte's. Charlotte, I think. Charlottesville or Charlotte? Okay, in Virginia. I know the state. Um, and it's been a dark couple of days. And unlike some, I'm not going to say that both sides have been horrible because um, it's obvious from the news and from what we can see from people that are there, uh, the violence is being perpetrated and in many ways condoned. But now there's three deaths. And I would like to take a moment of silence to remember them and their families and all of those still injured. If you would join me, please.
Please let peace reign. Amen. The morning of March 14th, earlier this spring, a call went out to our other chiefs of our ceremonial ground. The sacred fire had to be lit. It had to be brought to flame from the ashes. And then after what we call the grandmother fire that's on the hill, our ceremonial grounds is called Squirrel Ridge, and it's outside Kenwood, if anyone knows where Kenwood is. It's out in the boonies. And once the grandmother fire has been lit on the hill and it's grown strong, then flame from that fire was to be brought back to our house. It was, be, it was to be brought back to our house and placed in our backyard. And it was to be prayed over, to be watched over, and to be there in communion with the fire for four days and four nights with someone always there. Round the clock. The reason for this fire needing to be lit at our ceremonial grounds and at our house was because our two year old son had just passed away in our home, in our arms. People called him Warrior Kai because he was so strong. And he liked to sword fight. Even the doctors and the nurses, if they came in, he would challenge them to a sword fight. He had a very rare and lethal form of childhood cancer that was like a combination of leukemia and lymphoma together. And he also had HLH, which attacks the organs and shuts them down. And first he was in kidney failure. And, and then eventually this cancer spread into his spinal cord and his brain. And he was tired. He had fought so hard for that year. And it was because we were living in the hospital that year that I was coming out here for refuge. I was coming out here to plead, to pray, whatever you want to call it, to this big universe to help our baby. You see, for centuries, our ancestors have relied on fire for more than just heat sources for cooking or to light the night. This fire to us is a sacred element. Anyone remember earth, wind, and fire? Anyone in the groovy age? Those were sacred elements. And in the same way with our tribe, fire is a sacred element. It's living. And so in our way, when the fire is lit... 
It brings us into community. Sound familiar? It brings us into a oneness. It's asking us to leave all of our troubles and anything that's bogged us down through the week. Leave it outside and come in because you're with company. You're with family. You are with others who are like you. And so in these ceremonies at our grounds, it is the centerpiece of all ritualistic life. Everything that happens that is of importance happens around the fire. When my wife and I got married, we were married around the fire, which she agreed to. She's not Cherokee. She's Dutch (laughs) on her dad's side. He's from Holland, which is really cool. But she wanted to be a part of my culture just as much as I wanted to be a part of hers. And that fire was the symbol that brought us together into a oneness, into a unity. And so much in the same way, Unitarian Universalist congregations or churches, whatever you want to call them, across the world gather almost always by lighting the fire of the chalice because it calls us in and it unites us. But Ajil, the grandmother fire, has not always been with us. There was a time before she came that we were in disarray as a people. And not just the Cherokees, but all the southeastern tribes. And has anyone been to Cahokia Mound? Anyone? A couple? Okay. Cahokia Mound is up on the other side of St. Louis, on the Illinois side. Emerald Mound down in Mississippi is another mound. And Etowah Mound out in Alabama. There are mounds everywhere. Georgia and North Carolina, Tennessee, everywhere. All through this part of the world, as well as Mexico, Central America. They just built theirs with stone. They call them pyramids. Well, the culture that rose up around the mound-building society... We call them the Anikutani. And they became a religious priestly caste and instituted by religious manipulation a way to take the power away from the people and put it into the priestly caste. If any of you know about Hinduism, it's like the Brahmin caste. Hinduism has different caste, and the Brahmins are the priestly caste. It was exactly the same sort of way. And so society was split up between caste, but the priestly caste lived on these mounds. It was hereditary, and they could do whatever they wanted. And there came a time that they had become corrupt, like many religious institutions do. And they began even taking people's lives 
and began taking spouses from couples in the villages. If a priest saw a woman that he wanted, he had the right to take her away from her husband. And this began happening. And the people began to grumble and become upset until one day this one brave warrior and of course all stories that we have were orally passed down there's different versions of this story but it's basically the same idea one warrior grew fed up when they came for his wife and he said no that's it that's the last straw and he killed the people that came for his wife it started a chain reaction that went all around the village and then to the next village and the next and the next and the next thing you knew there was a complete overthrow of the mound building societies the ani katani were no longer living it was a complete decimation decimation of all adults that were ani katani some say that all of them were killed, including the children, so that none of their bloodline could live through. Other elders, I've heard, say not all of them. It was only the leaders. It was only the men, which was common when tribes went to war. That would make the most sense, since the men had overtaken. And we know all of the southeast tribes are traditionally matriarchal and matrilocal and we have women in roles of leadership for the last few hundred years but during this time of the ani kutani it wasn't that way it was patriarchal and so that went against our traditions there's many theories about where the ani kutani came from but the main point is that they overtook our people in a way that destroyed us, that humiliated us, much like other empires that come into a place and overthrow the local population, like we see around the world. So after this overthrow, and the people in the villages, they gathered together and they brought their elders together. What do we do? What do we do? And they had forgotten all of the things that the Creator had taught them in the beginning when they were first a people. They had forgotten the things that the animals had taught them and that the plants had taught them. All of those things had fallen away because they became dependent on that priestly caste to do all of the spiritual work for them. So now they were in a black time, a dark time. And then, out of nowhere, a man showed up. There's different stories about this man. Some say he looked very different than all the other people. He was lighter complected. Some say he did his hair a different way. Some say he wore a robe instead of the traditional regalia of our tribes. Some say he'd looked, you know, such and such. There's all different stories about what he looked like. Again, the one thing we know is that he stayed with our people 
for at least a few years. He taught them the ways of the Creator. He taught them the ways of medicine. He taught them the ways of listening and working with the water and with the animals. And he taught them how to sing. He taught them songs, but then he also brought the women in and said, you women are set apart because you will have the tempo. You will create the music for your ceremonial songs. And so he taught them all of these things. He brought in sick children and showed them how to heal the different illnesses. And then he said, I'm coming close to my time that I will have to leave you. But I'm going to send someone that will be with you forever. I'm going to send someone that will light up your world and that these dances that I've taught you, that you will go counterclockwise and know how to sing these songs and shake these turtle shells to make the music of the ceremonies. And then one day, this man that we call Usugei, he rose up into the sky and he was gone. And so the elders were gathered like he had instructed them. And they were sent up onto Klingman's Dome. Has anyone been there in North Carolina? Klingman's Dome? Anyone? Okay. It's, it's a very tall mountain in North Carolina. You can see Tennessee and all over the place. So they went up there to pray and to wait and fast for seven days. And they waited and they waited. They prayed. They took turns talking and praying. And then on the seventh evening, as the sun was going down, right as it went, let's see, it's over there. Right, the west? Okay. Right as the sun went down past the horizon, they saw a really bright light up in the sky. And it kept getting bigger and closer and closer. And then that light came down right in the middle of them, and it was a ball of fire. And they had been instructed to build a pyre to take wood and stack it. And that ball of fire came down and lit that wood, and that fire became alive for the people. And then it all became clear what to do with this fire. And so they went down to the people, and they took the fire with them, and replicated that and spread the word all around to the southeast tribes. And that's why even today, we still have this same fire burning. Even on the Trail of Tears, it was brought from North Carolina and Georgia. And so parts of this fire have gone out to all the ceremonial places and because of the fire that's there, 
everyone is equal. There is not one above another. And when we sing our songs, the women or girls like Kiana, she started with turtle shells on her legs. We call them shackles when she was two years old. She had two little shells. But the older adults, they may have 36, or they might have 24, or they might have 32. It depends on what they're doing. And, but it's turtle shells attached to the women's legs. And they, they shuffle their feet to make the rhythm. That's the music. These turtle shells are full of little pebbles. And that's how it sounds. They lead, and then, the, and then the men call out songs. There's a leader, and then the rest of the men repeat. And that's the ceremony that goes around the fire. And so then, at the end of our ceremonies, the fire is allowed to go down to coals to be kept until the next time it is lit. And we have a saying for us, we never say goodbye. We always say, which literally means, until we see each other again. But it goes even deeper than that. It's similar to what we always say at these Unitarian Universalist congregations. When we extinguish the fire, what is said? It's in your hearts. It's in your hearts. And carry it with you until we come back. That's the implication of don da gohan'i. We take that fire with us. As we leave in our normal daily lives, we're carrying that same fire. And then when we come back in unity, then the fire is lit again. Because it's at that time we get to come together in one and recognizing the divinity that's in each other so that we can do the work as a community, not just as individuals. And for me, the fire is the most representative connection between Cherokee traditional beliefs and the UU. Because this fire unites us it clears this auditorium this space and says we're set apart right now because we're together like Walt Whitman so famously said and I love this quote he said we were together the rest I don't remember that is what the meaning of the fire is bringing us together. Amen.